welcome to the eighth episode of the interview. For this episode, we are fortunate to be joined by someone who, in my mind, is a true feminist and a true liberal in a time when both of these terms are losing their meaning. Yasmin Mohammed is the author of the book, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. She's used her voice and her platform to become a human rights activist, signing up for the rights of women living within Islamic majority countries, as well as those who struggle under religious fundamentalism. She's someone whom I have a huge amount of admiration and respect for, has consistently displayed courage to firstly escape from the oppressive rule of Sharia law, and now in standing up to the hypocrisy of the political, of the political left for failing to stand for true liberal values. Yasmin, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Finn. That is the best introduction I have ever received in my countless interviews that I have done. I don't believe that. So beautiful. I love it. No, I absolutely do. I'm going to like record that. I'm going to transcript it. And when people say, send me your bio, that's what I'm going to send them. It was oh, perfect. Thank you. Loved it. I especially love that you said that I'm a feminist and a liberal in a time when both of those terms have lost their meaning. 100% agree with that. It's so disheartening, so enraging to see the words that mean so much to me be you know, bastardized and, um, you know, turn into slurs actually these days. And uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's very sad. It, it really annoys me because I like, I myself would identify as liberal. Um, and for me, a liberal is someone who is open to other people's views and ideas and not <laughs> against criticism. Um, and it's, it's just become the opposite of that. Like what you're seeing happening in the mainstream media now we're seeing going on within the New York Times where that, that woman, Barry Weiss, was essentially bullied out of the place. And now people go, and people then on the right go, oh, these stupid liberals. I say, don't call mm -hmm. them liberals. And I'm not a, I've come across Ben Shapiro, I'm not a fan of his, but I like the way he calls them leftists. He says he doesn't call them liberals because I define liberals as someone like Sam Harris or Bill Maher. True liberals. The, 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 this new wave of people who are calling themselves liberals that work at the New York Times that are kicking people out and bullying people for having different views. They're the opposite. They're the absolute opposite of liberal. Absolutely. They're entirely illiberal. That's exactly against what we stand for. We stand for free speech. We stand for a diversity of ideas, not just a diversity of identities. And so when there are people that are on the left that are, I guess in these days, they're being called woke, um, that that are against liberal ideas, but then they get called liberal. Yeah, it really muddies the water and, it, and it's very frustrating. And it's the same thing with feminism too. You know, I, I find myself having to say old school feminist or old school liberal, you know, like what the word used to mean, what the term used to mean. And um, yeah, feminists these days are, are very um, disappointing with, some of the things that they are saying and doing and it's all under the umbrella term of, of feminism so it makes people it's easy for people to dismiss all of feminism by choosing these extreme actions that some people are doing and saying well this is what feminism is well no it's not those people are against again it's just like the woke i feel are illiberal a lot of these feminists, I think, are not for equality at all. It's uh, so it's against the ethos of feminism as well. 
with that, I think that kind of segues well into um, your story. Can you, um, as quickly as you can, I suppose, um, I don't know, you've, you've repeated your story so many times, but give us an overview of how you got to where you are now from where you kind of started off as a kid. Sure. So I grew up in a very fundamentalist Muslim household. So my mom was what I call a born again Muslim. She was uh, her, my, my, her and my dad divorced when I was about two years old. So I never really lived with my dad and my mom is Egyptian and um, they had just moved to Canada. They'd been living in San Francisco in the United States in California and they had just moved to Canada and they weren't here for very long before their marriage fell apart. So she found herself in a country with no community, no support system. And so she went to the local mosque looking for friendship and, and everything. And there she found a man who was already married and already had three children, but offered to take her on as his second wife. So you may, I don't know if your listeners are familiar in Islam, men are allowed to marry up to four wives. And so even though the polygamy is illegal in Canada, it's still done regularly. And um, so my mom grew up in a secular Egypt. So that means it wasn't necessarily very religious as it is today, but it was still, you know, in the 50s. So it was still quite sexist. And she grew up not thinking of herself as a full independent autonomous human being. And she thought that she needed to be connected to a man in order to be valued, which is very typical of that time and also very typical of, of the, you know, Middle Eastern North African culture. And so she connected herself to this man who started to make demands on her and her children. She suddenly had to cover her hair. He broke all of our records because music is haram. Haram means forbidden. He didn't allow us to ride bikes, didn't allow us because, you know, a girl, if she rides a bike, she could break her hymen and not be a virgin on her wedding day. We weren't allowed to swim anymore because swimming suits show too much of our skin. Um, birthday parties are haram because the prophet never celebrated birthday parties, you know. Um, we weren't allowed to have non-Muslim friends anymore, which was the worst part for me because I'm a very you know, extroverted social person and especially when I was little and I used to play with my neighbors, we played Barbies all the time and suddenly I wasn't allowed to have friends that were non-Muslim anymore. And we had to study this book, we had to read the Quran, we had to memorize it and regurgitate it, we had to pray five times a day. It was just a lot of rules, a lot of good things taken away from me and a lot of really dark, vicious things given to me. And um, I fought in the beginning, but then eventually we moved into his house and you kind of give up. By the time I was nine years old, hijab was put on me. So that means I had to cover everything but my face and hands. And I went to Islamic schools. So, you know, that's it. You just, there's nothing more. You can't really fight when you're a child. The meaning of the word Islam, people like to say it means peace, but it doesn't mean peace. The word peace is salam. 
Islam or Tislam is to submit. The word Islam means submission. And really, when you read my book, that's you can see that theme very clearly of me trying to fight and trying to be an individual and then just submitting because finding that the powers that are controlling me are just too big. And that continued on until I was forced into a marriage. My mom felt that I needed to be married to a man who was strong enough to control me, strong enough to keep me in line. So she chose a member of Al-Qaeda. So she married me off to a, a jihadi. And um, I had a child with him very soon after the marriage. And it, I had a daughter. And so, you know, having a daughter holding your little girl and realizing that she's going to have to live the same life that you've just lived or worse even, it really, that's what made me find the courage to, to escape out of that world, basically to, to free her from that world and to free myself as well. And it was a very long process, but that's, uh, that's the very short synopsis. Um, uh, sorry, it's, 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 it's really, uh, I've, I've heard, I've heard that story before, uh, on Sam's, but it's, uh, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine what, what, what it was like. And, um, and, and the fact you managed to escape it, uh, is, is a real testament to you. And, and it's great that, that your daughter, that you actually get, got to give her a life, which, um, wasn't kind of ruled by this, um, these oppressive rules, um, I'm just going to try and take a step back for a moment away from the emotional element of it and, and speak to you as a uh, objective interviewer. What do you say to those people that say that, well, you were just unfortunate, this could happen in any culture or this could happen in any religion. Uh, Islam had nothing to do with these unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. So the fact that it could happen to anybody under any circumstances is true, but the difference is that it's actually codified in Islam. So for example, when my husband would beat me, according to Canadian law, he is in the wrong, right? But according to Islamic law, it's his right to beat me. That's what a man is instructed to do if he fears disobedience or arrogance from his wife, according to the Quran, according to the literal word of Allah. So you can't really grow past that. You can't progress something that is the literal word of the creator of the universe. You know, in over 50 Muslim majority countries, these kinds of laws, the, like the, the Islamic laws, Sharia, are in the, the government. So, you know, I'm lucky enough to be living in a country that is secular, where the, the laws of the religion and the laws of the land are separate. But still, what you just said affected me. Because when I went to, I told one of my teachers about what was going on with me, and he alerted the police who alerted child services and it went to court and in the end the judge said to me sorry that's just your lot in life you happen to have been born to this family and this is how they choose to discipline you and so i'm just gonna you know 
I'm going to leave you in your home. Whereas if I were sitting in front of him, a child from, you know, a Swedish or German or Irish background, he would have protected me. He would have seen the bruises on my body. He would have heard the stories of being hung upside down and whipped since the age of five years old. I've been getting the bottoms of my feet whipped for not memorizing the Quran. And he would have said, we need to get this child out of that home. We need to protect her. But I am seen as an other. I am seen as a not the same as the rest of us. And as much as that makes people uncomfortable, that's exactly what they're doing. And, you know, another example, an extreme example, but there are so many of them, is in the UK, where the fact that there were these rape gangs going on for so long that it you know, thousands of girls were being affected, girls as young as 11 years old, and nobody wanted to talk about it because nobody wanted to come off being racist or Islamophobic, yeah. exactly. So any journalists or politicians or law enforcement people that tried to speak up about it were told you're being a bigot because the overwhelming majority of the perpetrators of these rape gangs were Pakistani Muslims. So when you are too scared to speak up against an atrocity happening towards a fellow human being because you're afraid to offend their oppressors, what you're essentially doing is you're not only empowering, but you're facilitating that oppression to continue. That judge facilitated my oppression to continue. He, he allowed it to happen. He signed off on it and he said, that's okay because you happen to be from an Egyptian family. So that's, you're, you're just going to have to deal with that. I, um, I encountered an article recently, I think, where um, one of the British courts actually recognized Sharia law, but recognized yeah. their right to overrule Sharia law. Is yeah. this still happening in Western democracies? Are, are, are Muslim men still allowed to act completely outside of, of a sort of a, a Western, um, of Western values and outside of, outside of that, those countries' laws under Sharia law, even within Western countries? Yeah, this is the insidiousness of that cultural relativism. So in the UK, there are over 60 courts that recognize Sharia. And that means that in, in those courts, women do not have the same rights as they do as other British women, right? Because they happen to, the, of course the men are gonna choose to follow Sharia, right? Because those laws are incredibly misogynist, um, especially when it comes to marriage and divorce laws. Women don't even have the right to divorce their husbands. He has the right to divorce her, but she has no way of, there's no, mechanism for a woman to divorce her husband other than to go to a court and beg for a judge to grant her the divorce. But in Islam, all a man has to do, literally his voice, his magical voice, he just has to say, you are divorced. If he says it three times, then they are divorced. But for a woman, zero ability to divorce him. And with the children, they automatically go to him. She has no rights over her kids. This is why a lot of women stay in these, you know, a very, very common thing that happens is that women are enthralled by a 
tall, dark, and handsome, charming, exotic man from Iraq or Syria or Egypt or Libya or whatever, and they, a, a, like a, a British woman or a Canadian woman or an American woman, a Western woman, not understanding what she's getting herself into, marrying him, having children with him, and then suddenly realizing that she has no rights over those kids. And so even if she decides that she wants to leave the religion, she understands that that means she's gonna to have to leave her children too. And I cannot tell you, Finn, how many women I have spoken to that have told me that they've had to walk away from their own children. And, uh, and, you know, and, and just, just to clarify, these are not women that are living under Saudi Arabia, which we would see no. as being an oppressed country. These are women li living in Canada, the UK, Ireland. Correct. Yes. And um, there, there's a, what the, what quite often what ends up happening is the father will, they'll go on a family vacation or the father will kidnap the children. This has happened countless times too. I've spoken to grown adults who told me about being kidnapped and being taken to Libya or being taken to Egypt as children. And sometimes, you know, you got you might be familiar with an old movie called Not Without My Daughter. So sometimes the mother can fight hard enough to get her children out with her and to get back home. But quite often, she's under the rule of the laws of the country that her children are in. And because the way citizenship moves in Islamic countries, again, misogyny, it goes with the father. So if the, children, if the children's father is Saudi, then the children are considered Saudi. And that's why I never got an Egyptian citizenship because my father is an Egyptian. And so I'll never be considered um, Egyptian. So it's always, it only travels with the father. And, and they have this, like with one woman from Saudi Arabia, the law actually, the, the judge actually said to her, we are not going to allow you to have your children because you are too westernized. I mean, he's talking to an American woman and he's telling her you're too westernized, you're gonna westernize the children so you're not allowed to have custody of them and you're not allowed to, to take them out of the country. So yeah, I mean, I've, got, I've gone off on a tangent, but Sharia laws are incredibly, incredibly sexist in a way, I mean, women are supposed to be, you know, stoned if they, if they have sex out of wedlock, they are in, in, in countries like Iran, women are imprisoned for not wearing hijab. These are, you know, it, they have to have a male guardian before they can leave the house, before they can be allowed to work or be allowed to drive or be allowed to travel or be allowed to do anything. A man has to approve of that. I mean, literally they're called a guardian as if it's some sort of prison guard. So, you know, I think it's quite, Hopefully, it's it's known to your prisoner or to your prisoners, <laughs> to your listeners, um, how insidious Sharia is, how horrible it is to women, and the fact that those laws are allowed to be practiced in a country like the United Kingdom just makes me want to throw up. This is a country where women have literally died for their equality. And then what they say to those women is, yeah, but you're not equal as other women. British women will get British laws 
but you're Muslim, so you're going to have to follow your your shitty, archaic, barbaric laws that treat you like dirt. It should I, not be allowed. I, I have a theory on this on why um, what why what why, what you consider the the political left um, and the mainstream media are so uh, afraid to um, criticize Islam in any way was. Now, I might be completely wrong, and I haven't done much reading into this. It's just something that I thought of the other day, was that after 9-11, uh, when that happened, which, anyway, in my lifetime, was the first Muslim terror attack I'd seen in the West. Um, after that, you could see a lot of genuine bigotry towards Muslims in America. Um, I remember Borat, the film, came out then with Sasha Baron Cohen, where he would go into like the Deep South, and people would tell him to get his beard beard off and they're worried that he might have a, a bomb shoved under his trousers and stuff and you'd see actual bigotry and um to me back then it seemed like the right side to be honest was obviously against that bigotry to to be a true liberal and stand up for the rights of all of all people it seems like now that's just that's continued on and it's it's so ingrained within within the left wing's ideology of like no islam is is an equal religion it's a it's a great culture we have to respect that culture and we can't criticize it in any way. Where do you see this um, complete refusal to recognize how awful Sharia law is and how bad some of the central tenets of Islam are from the political left and from the mainstream media? First of all, I want to note that what you express there is that their terrorism works, that their terrorism was successful, that they succeeded. When they kill the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists for criticizing Islam, and after that you see all over liberal media saying, well, yeah, they shouldn't have criticized it, that was disrespectful, they shouldn't have done that, then that means the terrorism is successful. That means everything that they're doing is working. Now, after 9-11, of course, it was I agree that there shouldn't have been, and there shouldn't be today or any day, bigotry against any human being for who they are. This has nothing to do with individual human beings. This has to do with the ideology, the religion itself. So I'm not saying, you know, what I'm talking about are people like me and the countless people like me that are fighting against these oppressive regimes. You would expect that the liberals in the Western world would be standing hand in hand with us and supporting us because we have shared values. But instead they are standing hand in hand with our oppressors. And Yes, I think that the reason why that they're doing that is because they think that they're being, you know, politically correct or that they are trying so hard to not be bigoted. But you reach a point where you cross a line where you are no longer not being a bigot, but you are now supporting atrocities and that the the rape gangs in the UK is a perfect example of that you've now gone you've crossed the line from saying we're going to not be bigoted towards Muslims into saying we're going to support Muslims regardless of what they do even if they are raping young girls and keeping them in rape gangs for years and literally handcuffing them to tables so that they cannot escape like you cannot blanketly support a person 
or a group of people ever. That's never gonna fly. You can never say I support white people no matter what they do. I support black people no matter what they do. I support Jewish people no matter what they do. Of course not. We're human beings and all of those groups include good people and bad people and a whole spectrum of people in between. And the fact that they have that simplistic, childish, almost Disney-like view of good guys and bad guys, good guys wear white hats and bad guys wear black hats and Muslims are good and they wear white hats so we have to support them at all costs, otherwise we're bigots. Well, now you're not only, okay, what's, what's worse than being called a bigot is somebody who empowers and who supports rape gangs and misogyny and female genital mutilation and child marriage and and honor violence i mean there's a movie again it's from the uk it's called banaz a love story and it's on youtube for free and it's a story about a young kurdish girl from iraq who went to the police on five different occasions they have recordings of her going into the police station five different times telling them, my father is trying to kill me. My father is going to kill me. And they never listened to her and they never took her seriously until they found her body chopped up in suitcases in her father's backyard. You know, th this, is the, this is what happens when you don't want to listen to people who are screaming and yelling from inside of this ideology and saying, please help us, please get us out of here. Instead, you shush us like the judge did to me and says, oh, they're there, go back home. It's your luck, you have to deal with it. Like they did with Benaz. Luckily, I didn't end up with the same fate as Benaz, but my mother also threatened to kill me. You know, I, I am lucky that I'm sitting here talking to you today. Honor violence and honor killings are a very common part of, of my culture of my background, of Islam. And it's really important that we recognize the difference between an ideology and human beings. There's a very vast difference there. And when we speak out against the things in Islam that are causing harm, it's because we care about the people that it is harming. You know, when I speak out against, you know, if, if somebody speaks out against the Christian uh, like it speaks out against the church or some churches for how they treat the LGBT community. They're speaking out against how they have uh, forced conversion therapy and stuff like that. Nobody will say, oh, you're being Christianophobic. Oh, do you hate Christian people? Oh, you're being a bigot against Christians. People will recognize, oh, you're saying that because you care about these kids that are being forced into conversion therapy. It's because you have, you know, empathy towards other human beings. And I 100% have empathy towards other human beings going through what I went through. When I speak to people in Sudan and Somalia and Iraq and Iran and Egypt and Bangladesh and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, I get letters from all over the world, all the time, from people telling me their stories. And when I hear their stories, I'm hearing my own story. And I can't tell you how many people have read my book and said, when I read your book, it was like reading my own book. We have so much in common because we have that shared, you know, Islam is the, is the one thread that connects us all and the edicts of Islam and the rules of Islam and the, the you know, 
the, the tyranny of Sharia is what we all share. So yes, it can happen in all cultures and yes, it can happen in all countries, but the reason why it's happening to all of us and the reason why we can't break out of it is because people really believe that this was a divine rule, that there's a, that there's a, you know, this sexism and this bigotry and it's this anti-Semitism. It? it is the word of Muhammad, but he likes to say it was the word of Allah. So right. yeah, he was in a, he was in a cave. He was, um, you know, he'd been fasting for I don't know how long. So he, the man hadn't eaten and was sitting in a cave, wanted to be, you know, secluded. And he started to hear voices. And this is like literal, this is what people, this is what billions of people on this planet believe. And he started to hear voices and he thought he was going crazy. And obviously he's just hallucinating because he hasn't eaten or drink or had anything to drink in so long. And he's sitting secluded in a, in a cave. But anyway, he hears this voice and he goes running home to his wife and he's like, I heard this voice in a cave and it was the voice of God. I think it was the voice of an angel. And she said, oh, you must be a prophet. That must have been an angel bringing you a message from God because you need to lead the people and you need to rule humanity. And from that moment on, he considered himself to be a prophet. And every now and then, the angel would come and deliver another message to him and that message would be part of the Quran. So it was like, suppose Muslims believe that the Quran is the literal word of Allah, unlike the Bible that is, you know, metaphors and stories. This is Allah's words, you know, straight from the angel's mouth. Is the yeah. Quran the most dangerous religious text there is then? Well, I don't know if it's the most dangerous religious text in general, in like history. Like to say, I know that example, Deuteronomy is, so sorry to interrupt just I've, I've had this debate before and it's around people at the dinner table they go oh well read the old testament that's no good either I'm sure like, yeah, but, but what government thank you thank you what world what country on this planet has the old testament in their laws and forces people to abide by it it's not it's a non-issue islam is the problem with it is not that people want to follow it if people want to follow it, go right ahead, you know, go crazy. People want to follow the Old Testament, sure, have at it. Enjoy your incredibly restricted life. That's your business. My problem is the fact that this religion being the way it is and the way, the way it is in the laws of the land and in just the way the teachings of the, of the religion are, there is no room. There is no room for somebody to say, I don't believe in this anymore. So for example, when I said I wanted to take off my hijab, I don't know if you've ever seen the hashtag free from hijab. Yeah, I I've know you're a big advocate of it, yeah. Yeah, so if you ever see just a woman deciding what she wants to put on her body, she can be, she's attacked with acid, she's abused, she's locked in her house, she's, um, imprisoned, she's threatened with death, and in many cases she is killed. Just here in Canada, in not too far from me, a young girl, 16 years old, was strangled to death with the hijab that she refused to wear by her father and her brother. Um, so that's what happens when you say, I don't want to follow this religion anymore. There is a, in Islam, it teaches that the person who denounces Islam should be killed. 
So there's no room for you to say, I don't want to follow this religion anymore. That space isn't there for us. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm fighting for. And that's what I feel betrayed by liberals when they don't help us fight. And instead they help the other side because we are the ones that are fighting for our freedom. And supposedly that's what liberalism is all about. What did you think of Jacinda Ahern um, in her response to the, the, the terror attacks in New Zealand when she wore him and hijab? Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know. Like, it, you really have to dig deep to find out how oppressive the parts of the, the Islamic religion are and how oppressive the hijab has been on women. And I don't know if Jacinda Ahern was aware of that and, she might have just thought this was one way she could sh show solidarity with this community. Um, yeah, w what's your response to that? Well, you may, be, you may be right, but I don't think that her as the prime minister of a country has the luxury of making such a stupid mistake. She doesn't have the luxury of being that ignorant. She should have people around her that are researching for her before she does something like that. So to support the Muslim community is one thing. Like, so if this had been a synagogue that had been um, attacked, would she shave her head and, and, and wear a wig? Because she now wants to be in support of Jewish women, apparently. She took the extreme example. Most Muslim women in the West do not wear hijab. And the reason why they don't is because they are living in a society that will support them when they want to take it off. Sure, they're going to get attacks from their communities and from their families, et cetera, et cetera, from friends would disown them and all that stuff. But at least the country that they're living in is going to support them. So most Muslim women in the West don't wear hijab. So what she basically did was she chose a, not just a, a fundamentalist part of Islam, but a misogynist part of Islam that literally gets women killed. And she chose to wear that as a symbol of solidarity. So, you know, it was an incredibly tone deaf thing for her to do. And it's a divisive thing. Hijab is incredibly divisive. Women that remove the hijab get told, you're not Muslim anymore. And when she does that, she is basically confirming that a Muslim woman wears hijab. And that's, something that a lot of Muslim women have been fighting against for a long time. There are a lot of campaigns all over Egypt, Sudan. I mean, and even in America, Asra Nomani just wrote an article for the Washington Post where she was talking about, I'm a Muslim, please do not try to wear a hijab in solidarity with me because that is not something that I agree with. So um, yeah, I think you, you, you're probably right. Obviously, this is my life's you know, this is what I do. This is my, my book, my, my activism. So I'm very familiar with how vicious it is, but perhaps she didn't know. And perhaps the common people don't know, but, um, or sorry, perhaps it's not common knowledge. People don't know, but I think that, uh, I won't, I won't give her a pass uh, because I think that she should have known better. And I won't give a pass to Nike for putting their swoosh on a hijab. I won't give a pass to Mattel for putting a hijab on Barbie's head. I won't give a pass to Sports Illustrated for putting hijab on the cover of their magazine. All of these corporations, all of these people 
are being incredibly ignorant with their support of something that kills women, yet in the same breath, they try to pretend that they are intersectional feminists and that they are progressive and that they care about women of color when they do that. So no, none of them get a pass. And what's even more worrying is just how when Jacinda Hearn wore that hijab, she was just, she went to superstardom worldwide. Like the yeah. mainstream media lapped it up and she was a hero to everybody. <sighs> what's the response been like to you from the mainstream media? Has, has anyone given you a fair hearing? Yeah. So, you know, that's the, that's the Orwellian part of this whole thing is that when you support Fundamentalist Islam, you know, again, I'm going to bring up Nike. They just released a advertisement with a woman covered head to toe in black, head to toe in black. Literally the woman is covered in a death shroud as she's still breathing. And they have that in their advertisement. And that's supposed to be something to be normalized and applauded, something to be celebrated that this woman is being suffocated to death. You know, I don't understand what's going on. The same people that will say for themselves, free the nipple, we're allowed to wear whatever we want, don't judge a woman by what she's wearing, will go ahead and support the most vicious tool of rape culture that you could possibly imagine. Hijab is literally epitomizes rape culture. There is nothing in the Western world that epitomizes rape culture like that. And they would never accept it for themselves. But for other women, not only do they accept it for them, but they encourage it for them. It's absolutely disgusting. And these are the same people that will pretend that they're not bigots, that they're not racists, and that they care about women of color, and that they care about minority groups. I don't understand it. What's your dealings and encounters been like? Have you been attacked by uh, by the New York Times or by yeah, so by, by the mainstream media? So the only time, so when I went on BBC, for example, let me tell you one one little story of of what happened, so you can know what it's like for me on mainstream media. I was talking to um, BBC. No, sorry, it was CNN. Oh gosh, I can't remember. It was one of them. Okay, they're, they're, about, they're pretty much indistinguishable anyway, so yeah. it's not too, too important. Um, yeah, so I was talking to them about a woman from Saudi Arabia who had escaped. I don't know if you've heard of her, but um, basically she was stuck in in her um, where she in Thailand where she had stopped. And she was continuing on, trying to continue on to Australia. But then her family figured out that she had escaped. And so they were coming to get her from the Bangkok uh, airport. Now, a couple years prior to that, the exact same thing happened in the Philippines. It was in the Manila airport, where a Saudi Arabian girl was trying to escape from her family, was in the airport there. Then they found out she was there. They asked the authorities in Manila to keep her, to take her passport away from her and to keep her until they arrived. This is her father and her uncle and her brother. And when they arrived, they duct taped her, 
her feet, her hands, and her mouth, and they put her on an airplane to Saudi Arabia, and she was never heard from again. Her name is Dina Ali. And so when this happened a couple years later to Rahaf, but now instead of being in Manila Airport, she's in Bangkok, but the same thing, exact same thing happened. They asked the Bangkok authorities, detain her, take away her passport, and we're coming to get her. So she saw that this was happening. We all saw that this was happening. We all started to panic like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be another Dina Ali. We have to protect this girl. So through a long series of events, eventually she's here in Canada now. And so I was part of that long series of events. So I did some um, media around that at the time. The interviewer at CNN or BBC asked me, but why would she want to escape from Saudi Arabia? Aren't women in Saudi Arabia, don't they live luxurious lives? Didn't she come from a family where she was well off and they had a lot of oil money? Why would she want to escape from that? That reporter should be fired on the spot for, acting, for asking a question so utterly ignorant. The problem is these institutions support that type of ignorance and that type of just willingly ignorance of like, no, we can't comment on that culture. So that's, that, that's not yeah, it's a wonderful culture for women. Why would she want to leave it? And when I'm trying to explain that even a gold cage is still a cage, he's arguing with me and telling me, no, 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 it's not like that in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> he's telling me what it's like for women in, in Saudi Arabia. And he's trying to, 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 to counter this woman that risked her life, not even a woman, she was 18 at the time, this, this teenager that had risked her life. And there are so many like her. There are countless women like her, women that I deal with in my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, women that I read about in the news. There was two sisters in New York that drowned themselves because they didn't want to go back to Saudi Arabia. And quite often when I speak to these women, that's what they say. They say, I'd rather die I'll risk my life to get out of this country because even if I die in the process, it's better than the life I'm living now. And this man is telling me, no, Saudi Arabia is not so bad, trying to temper my criticism because he doesn't want to come off as being bigoted or racist or whatever. And, and that's what it's like. You know, I get a lot of, oh, so this was your experience, but how common is that? You know, with all due respect, if you're a journalist and you've have you not done any research? Like what rock are you living under that when I tell you about a forced marriage, that this is a surprise to you, that you are surprised that I was forced into a marriage? Like, are you not aware of like once every three seconds, a girl is being forced into a marriage on this planet? And quite often that's in the Middle East and North Africa. Like they're, they're, there's, they're just incredibly unaware of the statistics and then they come at me, attacking me for trying to raise my voice for these people that cannot raise their voices for themselves because they're living in countries that will imprison them or kill them for trying to speak up. And then they attack me because they're ignorant about these things. They'll say things to me like, oh, but how common is it that, um, that people, that Muslim people will think that 
gay people are immoral, for example. Like maybe, maybe that's just your experience, but maybe that's not very common. Well, if you've looked at the statistics, you'll see that even in the UK, when Muslims were polled and they were asked, do you think that homosexuality is immoral? 100% of them said yes. So take, do some research before you come attacking me and saying that what I'm saying is untrue. You know, I, I just wish that people, I understand that Islam is not a very common religion in this part of the world and people are not educated enough about it. I, I'm upset about that. I wish they were. I feel like after 9-11, there's really no excuse. People should have started to pay attention and say, what is going on? Why do they hate us so much that they're willing to, to fly planes into our monuments and kill so many people? The fact that the goal of the religion is uh, ultimately a theocracy might in some way point to that. Exactly, exactly. So you understand that, you know that, you get that, but a lot of people don't. And then they'll, inter they'll bring me on to interview me without having done their homework and then just attack me on every point that I'm making which to me is, is very frustrating because these are not secrets. Like just Google what I'm saying. I'm not asking you to listen to my opinion. I'm not asking you to read my book and take it as, you know, Holy Bible or Quran Kareem. Just do your own research. Go to Quran.com, read through the Quran yourself. Go to Sunnah.com, read through the Hadith yourself. Look up Sharia law, what is it that they're demanding of people? understand these things before you start to tell me that what I'm that what I'm saying is extreme or I am ringing a bell that is you know unnecessary you know they, they are, they're just not aware and the thing is though too which is a really important note to make the people that I'm fighting for are not very loud because as soon as they raise their voice they're killed for it so the people that I'm fighting for, the people that I'm fighting with, the only place you're going to find them is in anonymous accounts online. And they change their accounts regularly because they know that their governments follow them. They've changed their VPNs and whatever. There's all sorts of processes. There's like all so many websites that teach them like how to do this anonymously. Uh, it's a very dangerous world to speak out against Sharia. I mean, you, you can see even in the West where people are getting, you know, there's the trucks of peace. There's people in Paris at the, the Christmas market. There's the Ariana Grande concert and the nail bombs. I mean, there's all of the stabbings and all of the museums across London or all of the, the bridges across London. You know that this terrorism is scary. And just imagine if you're living in a country that's Muslim majority, how much scarier it is for somebody in Iraq to speak up or somebody, you know, in Egypt to speak up or somebody in Saudi Arabia to speak up. And so that's why you don't hear their voices. And that's why people think that everything is okay because they're not hearing any screaming happening from that side of the world. So they don't recognize how people are suffering over there. They don't recognize how millions and millions of people are forced to pretend to be Muslim, otherwise they're going to lose their head, or forced to pretend to be straight, otherwise they're going to lose their head.
what's really worrying is that there's all these incredibly extreme, horrible examples of, say, of, of jihadism, like at the Ariana Grande concert or the Orlando shootings that happens um, mm -hmm. in America. I remember after those shootings, President Obama came out and said, jihadism has nothing to do with Islam. That's a straight up lie. These lies are being perpetuated everywhere by our politicians, by our media. Have you seen anyone who's had the balls to stand up to this and to actually stand for truth? Well, this is the unfortunate answer to that is the only time I see anybody say the truth, that person unfortunately is coming from the far right. Yeah. And so that's the only the only time I saw a woman politician say I am not going to wear the hijab was Marine Le Pen in from France, for example. That's the kind of all the other liberal and left politician women leaders were all donning the hijab like a bunch of dimmies. A dimmy like dimmy is a word that means basically a second-class citizen, Muslims in, a, in an Islamic caliphate, Muslims would be first-class citizens, and dhimmis are the Christians and Jews that get to live as second-class citizens, and they have to live under certain rules, and basically they must capitulate to Islam, or they won't be allowed to live. So, the only time I ever saw people stand up against this, people speak the truth, were voices that are quickly dismissed because they're coming from the far right. And that, yeah. That's one thing which I thought you, you must find yourself in a difficult position at times because I'm sure the likes of Breitbart and Fox News are probably licking their lips listening to you because they could actually use your story to justify possibly their own bigotry or to push maybe an anti-immigration saga. But no one on the left is willing to give you a, a fair shout or, or a fair hearing. So That's right. And so I'm stuck in the middle here. I won't go on Fox. I won't go on Breitbart. I have never been on those medias. But at the same time, I'm sitting here screaming and shouting waiting for somebody on the left to pay attention. And it kind of makes me understand why, at the end of the day, some people that I respect and admire end up going on Fox, because they are so frustrated that they cannot break through to their side. And so they're gonna go where somebody is offering them a microphone. Um, I want to talk to you about the, the case, you, case you alluded to earlier about um, the issue of child grooming in the UK with Muslim gangs and, um, and gang rape. I, I just finished uh, The Death of Europe by Douglas Murray, mm. which paints a pretty horrifying picture of um, Islamic integration into the UK. And the one stat that really, really um, scared me was uh, that I think Muslims make up 3% of the of the UK population, but account for 84% of the child pedophile cases. Is that a, 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 an issue that's linked to Islam or is that a cultural issue? That is 100% linked to Islam. So Islam teaches that Muhammad was the perfect example of 
for all humanity for all time. And all Muslims should try to emulate him and to, to follow his life as closely as possible. So he was 53 years old when he married a six-year-old girl. So when I gave you that statistic of once every three seconds, there is a girl forced into marriage, quite often those are child brides. Quite often those are girls that are sometimes being raped to death because their young bodies are not meant to withstand the, the, the horrors. And they call it marriage and they make it, you know, they try to legitimize it by calling it marriage, but it's essentially, you know, institutionalized rape of children. And it is across the Muslim world. So it's not one culture or another culture. It is across these 50 Muslim majority countries. And the reason why it's across all of those, and not just those countries, it's across anyone who's Muslim. Because anyone who believes that Muhammad is the perfect example of humanity for all time would be following his example of raping a child. Now, this is similar to the wife-beating example of what, what Sam Harris asked me. He said, you know, Islam teaches, tells men that if your wife disobeys, if you fear disobedience or arrogance, not even if she disobeys, but if you fear it, if you fear disobedience or arrogance from your wife, beat her. Now, that doesn't mean that every single man is going to beat his wife. But that means that any man that wants to beat his wife can do so with impunity. That means he can do so comfortably knowing that the creator, the almighty creator of the universe is behind him and is sanctioning this. The same thing with raping a child. How do you progress any society or any culture past wife beating and child rape when the almighty creator of the universe has sanctioned it. How do you get past that? Because even in countries where people have, you know, lined the streets trying to increase the age of marriage, those people get shut down at the end because at the end of the day, the perfect example for all humanity, for all time, married a child. So who are you as a lowly human to come and try to change those laws? You will never be able to change those laws. As long as the laws are Islamic, they will be following the examples of the leader of Islam. Does Islam need to be disbanded as a religion altogether or can it be um, salvaged by by moderate Muslims? I don't know if there are any. So <clears throat> there are reform Muslims. Reform Muslims, uh, sorry, that was the term I was looking yeah, for. Yeah, there uh, are I, reform I, I, Muslims. Sorry, I just want to add, I'm well aware there's plenty of uh, Muslims that don't adhere to all this ideology. A lot of them I do. mean, it's the same thing with any religion. Look at Judaism, it's on a spectrum. You can be Jewish and atheist. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you could be, you know, Hasidic. And same thing with Christianity. You could be the kind of Christian that like has never entered a church since you were a child. 
or you can be the kind that goes, you know, every Sunday and reads the Bible every morning. So it's, it's all, humans are always a spectrum. Muslims are no different. But at the end of the day, I think this is a good time for me to plug a movie called Islam and the Future of Tolerance, which is a documentary with Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz. And they wrote a book together as well. So the book and the movie are both based on a conversation that they had basically answering that question. So Majid Nawaz is a reform Muslim. Now I have to caveat this with letting you know the only reason why he's allowed to be a reform Muslim is because he lives in the United Kingdom. So he lives in a free country already. And even though he lives in the United Kingdom, he still does not have, you know, because he's considered a non-Muslim by his family, he doesn't have access to his own son. And he is constantly dealing with death threats. He was just recently beat up in the streets um, because somebody recognized him. So he is a Muslim that is trying to say, we can be Muslims, but we don't have to follow all of these illiberal edicts of the religion. I mean, that really cherry picks it down to a nub. <laughs> There's not much left when you take out everything that is illiberal. But, you know, good on him for trying. I support him because I support, you know, we share values. We share the same liberal values. So if he still wants to call himself Muslim, if somebody else still wants to call themselves Hindu or Buddhist or Jewish or Christian or whatever, and we have shared values, we all agree on liberal values, enlightenment values, then I'll support you. Is it not um, a complete oxymoron calling yourself a liberal while calling yourself a Muslim? Like I, I, I like uh, Majid from what I've listened to him, but what, what tenets of, of Islam does he propose that, he, that they keep as a Muslim reformer? Uh, that's a good question, and I, and I can't really answer it because I agree with you. I do think it's an oxymoron, and especially as a woman, there's nothing in that religion for me. Um, but, there, you know, there's some people that say, well, there's no need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They like certain aspects of the cultural... He's Pakistani, and Pakistan was developed as a Muslim country. That's, that's its whole purpose. It doesn't have a culture beyond Islam. Whereas like my family is from Egypt, there are plenty of non-Muslim Egyptians. We have a very rich, diverse culture that does not include Islam that was before we were um, uh, colonized by Muslims. So for me to divorce Islam from my culture, I still have a lot of history left there. For him as a Pakistani, to be honest, when he removes Islam, there's not much left. And so I think that this, this idea of, for him, is like, um, Islam to him is like, a, is like the only culture he has, even though it's not a culture, it's a religion. But, um, you know, I think he has a, an emotional connection to it. And that's why for him, it, it's harder for him to, to make, to sever that tie. Whereas um, it's not the same if you are a Muslim from India or Iraq or, you know, many other countries. It's a lot easier for you to say, 
I still love all these aspects of my culture, my language, my food, my music, etc. but I don't want anything to do with the religion. That's my theory. I don't know um, if I'm right or not, but that's kind of the thing that I've been seeing with a lot of Muslim reformers is that they, they have some sort of emotional connection to the cultural aspects of the religion. And when I say cultural, I just mean things like getting together to pray for Eid or uh, fasting together in Ramadan. So it's not really cultural, it's still religious, but it's the, the religious parts that are personal and private and have nothing to do with making a caliphate. You know, he used to be a, an Islamist, he used to be a member of Hezb Tahrir, so he used to believe in spreading the ideology of Islam and making all Muslim, all humans Muslim, making the whole planet, you know, um, succumb to Islam, submit to Islam. But he doesn't believe in that anymore. Now he believes that religion is a private affair, and it's between you and your, you know, your God in your own whatever church, synagogue, mosque or in your home, and it should have nothing to do with education, should have nothing to do with government, should have nothing to do with policy, and um, should have nothing to do with the public in general. And I'm fine with that. You know, I can't, I can't for myself personally, I see no, you know, I only find religion to be restrictive. And um, I think that it dampens critical thought and that it, you know, it is, uh, you know, it, it, it suffocates critical thought actually, but some people want to believe in whatever they want to believe. Some people believe in healing crystals and essential oils and whatever, like, you know, just let people believe what they want to believe as long as they're not causing harm to others and as long as they're not trying to force other people to follow what they believe. Like in, in Islamic countries, when it's Ramadan, nobody is allowed to eat or drink, regardless of if you're Muslim or not, it's irrelevant. The law of the land says during this month, you will be arrested if you're found drinking water in public. So that's the kinds of things that are completely unacceptable. If you want to starve yourself, that's your business, but I don't believe that anyone has the right to tell anyone else you're not allowed to drink or eat from sunrise to sunset during this month. Um, in, um, in The Death of Europe by, by Douglas Murray, uh, he, he paints a, pretty, a fairly grim picture of Islamic uh, integration into the West and how it's kind of led to an increase in child rape and homophobia and wife beatings and how these kind of these Muslim communities are establishing themselves and they're not integrating into Western values. Instead, they're actually still being governed by Sharia law. At the same time, though, uh, I don't think we should use these kind of statistics as an excuse to turn our back on the Muslim uh, community. And, and if, if someone's born in Syria, uh, like they're the most unlucky people, the most unfortunate people in the world. They should be welcomed into our countries. Obviously, you do need to put controls on immigration. But how, how would you try and um, sort of solve that problem 
of the spread of bad ideas from Islam into the West, while also being a humanitarian and trying to look after these refugees who badly need our help? Yeah, I don't think that it's, I think it's a really easy answer, but it's maybe difficult to implement. So from what I would do if I were, you know, queen of the world is I would, when you interview somebody before inviting them into your country, you ask them about their values and you ascertain whether or not their values are going to be integrated into your country, like whether they agree with your country's values, basically. There are, like I mentioned before, millions of people, you talked about Syria, like what about the Yazidis that were being taken as sex slaves by ISIS? Why weren't they first in line? Instead, we were taking in Sunni Muslims. And I think it just looks better for the photographs or something, at least that's the way it was here in Canada to have people dressed in exotic clothing, women covering their hair, it makes them look more woke. It makes, as far as our prime minister is concerned, these are the kinds of things that he thinks about. It makes him look more woke and more, you know, diverse that he's going to be inviting in um, people that, that look exotic. But I don't care about what people look like. I care about what people are thinking and feeling. So in Canada, you know, just like in the UK, just like in America, you have a certain set of core values that your country agrees, you know, like we have our, our constitution, um, or sorry, America has our constitution, we have our charter of rights and freedoms. So what you would do is you would sit down with these individuals and you would just talk to them. You would just ask them. What do you feel about women's equality? Do you think that women are equal to men? And you decide based on the response that you get, whether you want to invite this person into your country or not. And if you're inviting people in that already agree with your basic core values, then you're going to have a lot easier time, both for them and for you. Both of you are going to have a much easier time integrating. You know, they're going to be able to join a culture that they've always wanted to be a part of. Probably when they were living in Syria, they were hoping and praying that they could change their country so that it could be more liberal or it could be more open-minded or it could be more secular. And so now they get to come to a country that actually, you know, supports these values. They'll be over the moon and they'll be your best, you know, um, they will, they will fly your flag the highest. I mean, I'm thinking of Faisal right now, Faisal Mutag, who is uh, Iraqi. And of course he's Shia, so, or he was Shia. So he was um, part of the, the, the oppressed minority and part of the group that were affected really badly by Saddam Hussein. So he welcomed. American intervention. It was saving their lives. They were living in, in poverty. His father is a professor and his mother is a doctor. There's no reason for them to be living in the poverty that they were living in. He was talking about how he hadn't eaten meat in years. <coughs> I mean, the, the, the horrific stories he has of Stan Hussein will just, well, it, they're, they're so shocking. I think I had no idea even that it was so, he was that horrible of a leader. Uh, of a dictator, I should say. So 
when he was able to come to America, I mean, my God, you should see how this man celebrates July 4th. He is covered head to toe in American flags. He is constantly praising the United States of America for saving him, saving his family, saving his country. He is so grateful. He got an award actually from the White House for all of his, his work. Um, and, and that was under Obama, by the way. Um, so he, that's the example of what happens when you bring in immigrants that share your values. They will fight for your values. They will fight for your country and they will be your strongest allies and supporters. Whereas if you bring in somebody who hates your values and disagrees with your values, then quite obviously that's going to be pers a person who's going to fight against you tooth and nail the whole time that they're here. And that's why you end up with cases like you mentioned in the Pulse nightclub. Sure, that man was Afghani, but he's born and raised in America. His father was from Afghanistan. Born and raised in America, and he grows up to blow up a, uh, a club killing 50 people. And people say, you know, how did this happen? Well, it happened because his father was a preacher of hate, not only in Afghanistan, but from America via YouTube as well. And so you invited that kind of a person into your country, and then you say, how could he be like this? You know, they blame Americans and they say, this is homegrown. It's because you were mean to him and you're racist to him, so he decided to kill Americans. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. All of those people from the UK, Shamima Begum and you know, from Australia and all over Europe, all of those people that left their homes, that burned their passports and went to join ISIS, they didn't do that out of the blue. They didn't do that because they were just radicalized immediately via the internet. They did that because this was what they were being taught from when they were children. You know, you go back and you see those people that, that joined ISIS <clears throat> and we find, oh look, there's her father standing side by side with Anjum Chaudhry, who is a, a terrorist who is now in prison, but who used to roam the streets of the UK comfortably screaming about, you know, killing the infidels and, and hating Britain. So when you allow those, welcome those kinds of people into your country, of course you're gonna have trouble integrating them. They hate you. They hate your values. So I think that's really, it's a, it's a simple answer. Just invite people in that share your values. But of course it's much easier said than done because a lot of people you know, they, they want to do it easily. They want to say like the, what Trump has been doing, say people from these countries, no. And people from these countries, yes. Well, that's a very stupid way of deciding who's good and who's bad or who's going to fit in or who's not going to fit in. You can't just judge somebody based on where they had the, the luck or the bad luck of being born it has nothing to do with what their values are, or what their beliefs are. So it's going to be a slower process because you're going to have to take interviewing very seriously. You can't just choose based on country and, you know, get through quickly, but that's the only solution that I can see. Um, my final question for you, uh, it's, it's been really, really, uh, really touching and uh, eye-opening uh, sort of conversation I've had, and I hope it has a similar impact on my listeners. Uh, 
I'd, I'd like to try and um, see what, what I could do and let my listeners know what they could do to, to empower uh, these, these women that you're trying to help who, who don't have the voices. What, what can we do to, to kind of uh, help you in your journey and help these women get away from these oppressive regimes? Well, I think that the best thing that you can do is spread awareness. So when you mentioned about like Jacinda not having, not being aware and, and that's her as a prime minister. So imagine just regular folk are probably not aware. So I would ask you to even if it's something as simple as liking and retweeting these women that are posting their pictures and videos with free from hijab, I encourage you to have conversations with your family and your coworkers and your friends. I encourage you to start movie clubs or book clubs. So start a book club, pick up my book or any of the books by I on her CLE or Wind in My Hair by Masi Alinejad or um, a movie club. So Banaz, A Love Story, that movie that I just mentioned or um, Wajda, which is a, a book, a movie by a Saudi Arabian woman that is just about a little girl who wants to ride a bike. So remember when I mentioned earlier that even riding bikes is not allowed. Um, there's a movie called Honor Diaries that you could, you know, so, so have a book club or a movie club where people all watch this movie or they all read this book and then you come together and you discuss it and just plant those seeds, you know, just keep people talking. And when you see things like Nike having a Nakabi woman in her advert in their advertisement speak out against it You know, don't be afraid that people are going to try and shut you down with saying oh, that's racist or that's Islamophobic Be empowered have the have the information so that you will know how to respond to these people turn it back on them and say would you feel empowered if you were wearing a death shroud head to toe in black? Like, was that something that would be comfortable for you? Do you think those women in Afghanistan in 50 degree heat are happy dressed in burqas? Did you think that Malala Yousafzai enjoyed getting shot in the head because she tried to go to school? Like for us to turn our backs on these people who are fighting these oppressive systems because we think that we're not being racist and bigots, let them understand that, that by turning their backs on them, they are being racist and bigoted. Because they're saying, I'm not gonna pay attention to you because you're from another culture, you're from another place. So you're not as important as people in my geographical location. Um, so yeah, just just be, be like Trader Joe. I don't know if you've heard recently that Trader Joe's was being, um, was being attacked for being racist. And they fought back and they basically said, this is, this, this is not racist, this is fun, and we enjoy doing this. So basically what it is, is they would change some of their products' names. So if it's a Mexican product, they would call it Trader Jose instead of Trader Joe and things like that. Um, and so it's like, we have become too scared to speak up to speak our mind and to say what we want to say because of the mob. But to me, that mob is so similar to the mob that I ran away from. Because as a Muslim, if, if you're somebody like Majid and you want to speak up and you say, actually, what's wrong with being homosexual? They were born that way. Even if you just say those words, you are so viciously attacked from all sides that you shut your mouth after that. But there are a few people and enough people that will continue to talk 
until we force our voices to be heard. And that's why, you know, they want to kill us because that's their way of, their only way of, of silencing us. That's why Islam teaches that people like me should be killed. Um, but you're not in that situation. You're not in a world where people are trying to kill you for speaking your mind. You're not in a world where anybody will imprison you or beat you to death or throw acid on your face for speaking your mind. You're in a world where speaking your mind is still dangerous and can is still costly, but it will cost you so much more if you bite your tongue. It will cost, it, you are showing that that kind of bullying and terrorism, that those tactics are effective. And that's authoritarianism, that's totalitarianism. And so I guess my, my short answer is speak your mind. Whether you want to speak it on social media, whether you want to um, have write it letters um, to your members of parliament, um, however you want to do that, just please speak your mind. Don't bite your tongue. If there's a thought in your mind and you want to converse about it, talk about it. Don't let somebody tell you, oh, you're just white or you're just a male or you're just western or you're just whatever no everybody's opinion everybody in is valuable in this discourse and in this discussion this is not happening over there this is happening over here this is your business it is in your backyard and you have just as much right to talk about it as anybody else cheers yeah Yasmin, thank you so much for that i uh, i really enjoyed it wrapped up there Thank you so much, Finn.